thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 231, Torah, 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 the attack on Pearl Harbor. Last time, the Japanese strike force had launched its first two waves of fighters and bombers, and if things went well, a third wave would lift off. However, as an unknown submarine had been attacked by the destroyer USS Ward outside the mouth of Pearl Harbor, the Army and Navy were already on alert. To a point. Problem was, there was no consensus about the threat, if it was real or perhaps the result of over-eager men in uniform with no experience and, for some, very little training. Thus, Lieutenant General Walter Short, the U.S. military commander of the Hawaiian Department, Admiral Husband Kimmel, the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, and Admiral Claude Block, commander of the 14th Naval District, were all of the opinion that what was needed was verification before general quarters could be sounded. So, the waiting commenced. At that moment, Fuchida's first attack wave was only 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, north of Oahu. On the northern tip of Oahu, the U.S. Army's Opana radar station near Kahuku Point was up and running. There were five other mobile units scattered around the island, but they were, at the moment, shut down. The radar units had only been operational for the last two weeks, so General Short, who knew nothing of radar, how it worked, or what exactly it was supposed to do, assigned privates to them for training. The idea was for the radar, when it worked properly, the bugs were still being figured out, to help compensate for the island's lack of air patrol planes. The radar units had a radius of 150 miles, which meant that if enemy planes were spotted, the Army and Navy would have one hour to prepare. But even in this heightened environment, the current response time was three more hours beyond that to fully prepare. Which didn't matter. A declaration of war by Japan would give the island's defenses all the time it needed. Manning the Opana radar station, located 532 feet above sea level, which gave it a commanding view of the Pacific, was a three-person team. Privates Joseph Lockhart and George Elliott, the third, was still asleep. They were working a 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. shift, and then it would be time for breakfast. Of course, as their location was removed from their camp at Kawaiola, some nine miles away, they would have to wait for a truck to pick them up. Lockhart was at the radioscope. Elliot handled the plotting. The two men played with the mechanism, still learning it. Sometimes it worked, sometimes not. But they knew they'd eventually get the hang of it. Each man kept glancing at the time. Their shift was almost over. But then, at 6.45 a.m., a group of flashes appeared. They were coming from the northeast, about 130 miles off. The two men talked this over and considered waking up their mate, but Lockhart knew more about the radar than the other two, so let him sleep. It was Sunday morning, after all. 
Nine minutes later, a call came through. A superior told them that they were relieved of duty and to shut the scope down. This was good news to Lockhart and Elliot, but then they realized their truck hadn't arrived yet. Elliot, who did not know the system as well, decided this was his chance to get in more practice. Normally around this time each morning, the three-man crew picked up about 20 planes and used them to better learn the system. Lockhart stood behind Elliot and watched him. It was 7.02 a.m. As Lockhart explained the radio's echoes further to Elliot, a massive blip appeared. Both men groaned. The machine was acting up again. The two men switched places so Lockhart could troubleshoot. However, he quickly figured out that the radar was operating properly. Whatever they were looking at, and neither one had ever seen anything like this before, was real. The two men continued to stare at the large group of flashes. Lockhart could tell by their speed. These were not ships, but airplanes. That was as much as he could make out. The six mobile radar stations had not yet been staffed with people trained in identification. So what could account for this many planes, and where were they coming from? Well, there was only one thing to do for it, despite their shock. They followed protocol. Elliot tried to call Fort Shafter, near Battleship Row, at 7.06 a.m., but no one was around. There, everything had been shut down, so the staff could go to breakfast. Elliot was six minutes too late. Still, this, whatever it was, had to be passed on. So Elliot then made contact with the Information Center's switchboard. He reached Private Joseph McDonald and told him, There's a large number of planes coming in from the north, three degrees east. McDonald gave the message to the only other person there, Lieutenant Kermit Tyler. Tyler was a pilot, but had exactly one day of experience at the Information Center, and really, he wasn't sure what his duties were. Tyler told MacDonald it was nothing, and this was the message MacDonald delivered back to Opana Station. But this time, Lockhart was on the phone. He shot back. The blips were bigger now, which meant that there were even more planes than assumed before, and they were coming in straight for Oahu at 180 miles an hour. MacDonald just repeated Tyler's assessment of the situation. Lockhart demanded to speak to Tyler. When the two men were talking, Tyler tried to calm the situation down by saying that surely those planes had to be a part of Halsey's Enterprise Task Force. Then Tyler heard the Hawaiian music over the radio. Of course, that was it. Now Tyler told Lockhart that it had to be the B-17s coming in from California. Either way, it was nothing to worry about. As Lockhart had been shocked by Tyler's rebuff, he forgot to tell the lieutenant that the screen showed at least 50 planes, which meant it could not have been Halsey's planes or the B-17s. So the reporting of Elliot and Lockhart went nowhere. The Navy had not told the Army of Ward's battle earlier that morning with the submarine, and now the Army would not pass on the radar's finding to the Navy.
Lockhart and Elliot continued to watch the blips. At 7.15 a.m., the blips were 92 miles out, still with an airspeed of 180 miles per hour. To Lockhart, the planes appeared to be approaching in a slight zigzag pattern, which made even less sense. Why would they do that? This only added to the confusion in their radar unit. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Going back a bit, just after 6 a.m., Richard Fisk, the bugler of the USS West Virginia, a Colorado-class battleship along Battleship Row, next to and just outside of the USS Tennessee, was about to sound reveille. He and a few others heard an airplane and so looked up. It was a float plane circling Pearl Harbor. They all assumed it was one of their Grum and Goose JRFs, used for training and transport. Eventually, it would be used for search and rescue. In fact, it was one of the reconnaissance planes from the Japanese 1st Air Fleet, as it was quite common to see such planes up this early in the morning. After the Americans spotted it, they told themselves it was one of theirs, obviously, and went about their tasks. In fact, this very aircraft had been detected by Elliot and Lockhart at 6.15 a.m., but they assumed, like the men of the West Virginia, that it was one of theirs carrying out patrols. It continued to circle around Pearl, and at 7.35 a.m. reported, Enemy formation at anchor. Nine battleships. One heavy cruiser. Six light cruisers. Are in the harbor. Just before Mitsubo Fuchida's leading horizontal bomber reached the shores of Oahu, the clouds parted. He yelled over his radio, Tenkai, prepare to attack. Clearly, their coming had been a surprise, as no enemy aircraft had come up to engage them. Hence, he would stick to the plan that he and Captain Minoru Genda had arranged. If the attack had achieved surprise, then he would fire off one flare. This would send the torpedo planes and the fighters in first, the latter to destroy the Americans' planes and bases. Only then would the dive and horizontal bombers come in. If, however, they had been spotted and the Americans resisted, 
his dive bombers, fighters, and high-level bombers would go in first to weaken their defenses. Only then would the torpedo planes come in. This second alternative would be indicated by two flares. Fuchida had not yet received his scout plane's report, but he could see for himself that the Americans had not been alerted to their presence. So at 7.40 a.m., Fuchida fired off one flare. He then watched with pride as the trained pilots then began to reconfigure themselves to carry out the attack. However, the fighter group of Masaharu Suganami had not repositioned itself. Clearly, he had not seen the flare. Fuchida waited a minute or two to see if the fighter leader would figure out what was going on. He did not, so Fuchida fired a second flare, but only for Masaharu's benefit. Still, this confused the planes around Fuchida. Some of them saw one flare, some saw two. So now the various squadrons were confused. Either way, instead of the attack formation for surprise, with the torpedo planes going in first, now both dive bombers and torpedo planes increased their speed to get in first. And Fuchida could not break radio silence to correct his mistake. He would have to rely upon the gods. Meanwhile, Takahashi and his dive bombers saw both flares, so brought on more speed to take his dive bombers to hit the air defenses at Ford Island and Hickam Airfield. The latter was just below Battleship Row. But Lieutenant Commander Murata saw Takahashi's reaction and knew he had to get in first with his torpedo planes, or else the dust raised by the bombers would cloud his visibility. So he, too, poured on speed. At 7.49 a.m., Fuchida's radio man gave the order, Toe, 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 which meant charge. Fuchida was still steaming with anger at his men's confusion. His and Genda's painfully worked out tactics were ruined. But it was all beyond his control now. The one saving grace was that the Americans still seemed to have no idea they were coming. Back at the Apollo radar station at 745, the radar signal Elliot and Lockhart had been tracking was lost as several Japanese aircraft flew just over their station, disrupting the signal. As the first wave of attack aircraft passed over the Apana radar station, they continued southwest along the coast. But once they reached Haleiwa along the northwest coast, the bombers and fighters separated, each going after their respective targets. The fighters and some of the bombers went after Wheeler Field in the center of Oahu, while the torpedo bombers swung west of them to make for Battleship Row from the west. The horizontal bombers swung out even further west, roughly following the western coastline, to approach Battleship Row from the south. By now, these various Japanese squadrons were being spotted by locals and military personnel on the ground. But as there was such a military buildup on the island, few gave these sightings a second thought or glance. As Fuchida 
and his high-level bombers closed in on Ford Island in the center of Pearl Harbor, he spotted the U.S. naval vessels, the Americans' Pacific Fleet, through his binoculars. Surprise had been achieved. But then his joy was lowered somewhat as he moved his binoculars from side to side. The U.S. carriers were not there. Still, Fuchida remembered Admiral Yamamoto's words. If four battleships could be sunk, preferably in the harbor, to block any other ships from leaving, then the odds would be more even in the coming decisive naval battle, per Alfred Thayer Mayon. Better yet, such destruction may force the unnerved enemy to the negotiating table soon after. It was time. At 7.53 a.m., Fuchida had his radio man tap out, Torah, Torah, Torah. This message had multiple meanings. To is the first part of the word totsugiki, or attack. Ra is the first part of raigeki, or torpedo. And it was considered good luck that Torah, altogether, meant tiger, the animal of Fuchida's birth year. It would take some time as the attack commenced, but that message would soon reach the entire Japanese Navy and the naval and government offices back home. However, it first had to go back to the Akagi, Vice Admiral Nagumo's flagship. When those on board the Agaki heard the transmission, there were tears of joy mixed with open shock. The thousand-to-one plan inspired by Yamamoto and pieced together by Genda and Fuchida, had actually achieved its main goal of surprise. However, the coming U.S. military and civilian casualties of the attack on Pearl Harbor were not the first victims of Japan's undeclared war. As Fuchida's Tora 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 message spread through the entire Japanese fleet, submarine I-26 commanded by Minoru Yokota and her sister sub I-10, were searching for American vessels between the United States' west coast and Hawaii. At the moment they heard Fuchida's amazing message, Minoru had already known this was coming, from the Climb Mount Nataka message on December 2nd, Japan time. In fact, I-26 had spotted earlier the 2,140-ton Army chartered steam schooner Cynthia Olson, carrying lumber to Hawaii from Tacoma, Washington, on December 6th, and had been following her ever since, just waiting for the attack order. As it was now the morning of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Monoru was determined that the Cynthia Olson was to be his first victim. At 7.30 a.m., not waiting for Fuchida, I-26 swung in front of the schooner, surfaced, identified herself, and told the American crew his intention of sinking her. He was about 1,000 yards away. This was followed up by a warning shot from the I-26's 25mm machine guns. The Cynthia then lowered two lifeboats, but not before sending off an SOS that the nearby SS Lurline, a passenger ship, picked up. With the lifeboats moving away from the schooner, Monuru sent 18 shells from his 140mm aft gun 
but Cynthia stayed afloat. But then came the Torah, Torah, Torah message. Manuru submerged the I-26 and let loose a single torpedo. By now, the I-26 was some 450 yards away from its target. However, the fish missed, because the schooner, though ablaze, was still moving. So the commander resurfaced and shot another 29 shells from his 140mm gun. Finally, the Cynthia Olson settled and started to sink. As this had taken so long, Manuru worried about a possible air attack, so submerged and made his way towards the U.S. West Coast, en route to Cape Flattery, Washington. The next day, December 8th, the Japanese sub I-19 reported back to Japan that it surfaced and gave food to the Cynthia Olson's 35-man crew who survived the attack, which was the last ever heard of those men. But considering the treatment awaiting the Allied POWs by the Japanese, their disappearance is not that surprising. Back at 7.40 a.m., when the planes of the first attack wave passed over Kahuku Point, where the Opana radar station is located, the planes began to split apart to make for their various targets. Forty-three Zero fighters altered their course to come at Wheeler Field in the middle of Oahu from the north and west. Some of the dive bombers would hit that same target from the south. Another group of fighters, though smaller, turned to east, which put their path just north of Pearl Harbor to make for their target at Kanao Bay Naval Air Station. A third group of fighters made for Ava Mooring Mast Field of the United States Marines. These various paths would bring the Japanese their first victims, though only a percentage of them were in the military. Three men of the California National Guard's 251st Coast Artillery Regiment had decided to spend that beautiful morning renting a pair of Piper Cubs and flying around the island. 20-year-old Sergeant Henry Blackwell and 21-year-old Corporal Clyde Brown had their flying license, and would each take up a plane. They talked another man, 21-year-old Sergeant Warren Rasmussen, into joining them. It was to be their send-off, as the two pilots would be returning to California the next day. Their flying instructor, Bob Tice, and his wife, Edna, were on their way to the airfield to say their goodbyes to the two men when they landed. At 7.55 a.m., the two Pipers were set upon by seven Japanese warplanes who were getting into position towards Battleship Row. As they were just south of the mouth of Pearl Harbor, one Piper, after being hit, dove straight into the water. The other managed to evade the Japanese warplanes by circling around for a few more seconds, but then two was soon beneath the waves. Blackwell, Brown, and Rasmussen were the first Americans killed in World War II. Just before their deaths, 22-year-old flying instructor Cornelia Fort was up in the air with the student. Suddenly two planes came upon them fast. One was coming right at her. She turned the plane aside and maxed out the throttle. It was a near miss, 
She turned around to get the other plane's registration number to complain, but only saw red circles on its wings. Fort put the plane into a dive, landed it, and ran into the Andrew Flying Service. Just before getting into the building, one of the Japanese planes strafed her, but fortunately missed. Entering the building, Cornelia yelled, The Japs are attacking! Everyone who heard her spontaneously started laughing. Bob and Edna Tice were still waiting to say goodbye to the two exiting guardsmen. It was 7.50 a.m. Edna was inside the hangar doing some work. Bob was outside in the sun, enjoying another gorgeous morning. But then Bob saw some smoke that looked like it was coming from Hickam Field, which is just south of Battleship Row. He called for Edna to come outside. At that moment, one of the planes that had chased Cornelia Fort and her student was zeroing in on them. Edna was now beside her husband. Bob turned to say something to his wife, but at that moment, a machine gun bullet entered the back of his head and came out his throat. Edna, a one-time nurse, tried to help her husband, but he had died instantly. This same group of Japanese warplanes shot up a DC-3 passenger plane, waiting to take off. Fortunately, no one on board was hurt. The passengers then ran back into the hangar. Slowly, Oahu became alive to the fact that it was under attack. However, because of General Short's anti-sabotage alert, only four of Oahu's 31 anti-aircraft batteries were in position. But even these four did not have ammunition. That was locked up at various depots. It would have to be sent for and trucked over. Also, Oahu's 780 anti-aircraft cannon were only one-fourth staffed, and those men, upon seeing the Japanese strafe and bomb, convinced themselves that the brass was really putting on one hell of a war game. They told onlookers that their superiors had even buried explosives in the ground to simulate bomb runs. The supposed smoke bombs aboard the various ships also drew the admiration of those watching. Bewildered observations went something like this. A plane approaches. Why are those planes flying so low? Ground-based anti-aircraft guns fire at the plane. Why are the boys shooting at that plane? A bomb drops. What a stupid, careless pilot not to have secured his releasing gear. It explodes. Somebody goofed big this time. They loaded live bombs on those planes by mistake. As the plane turns upward, the Japanese rising sun insignia comes into view on the underside of the wings. My God, they're really going all out. They've even painted the rising sun on that plane. An American ship explodes. What kind of drill is this? A little after 8 a.m., the truck Elliot and Lockhart had been waiting for finally arrived, and they began their trek to breakfast. They weren't long on the road when they spotted oily smoke down in the harbor. Elliot and Lockhart both immediately knew what they had seen on their radar. Greetings. 
greetings from Central Virginia. So I just want to take a moment and thank the latest uh, members, the sponsors, people who are helping keep the show going as I am podcasting uh, full time now. And um, then I have a short request uh, uh, to make of you. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you to GMC Photography of Cork City, Ireland, Barbara H. from Chatham, New Jersey, Gary L. from Weldon Spring, Missouri, I believe, um, Kim B. from Trondheim, Norway, Todd H. from Columbus, Ohio, Kevin R. from Red Bank, New Jersey, Jason J. from Birmingham, UK, and I will be in the UK next year with the family, so Jason, um, feel free to buy me a pint or put me up in a castle, whatever, whatever you think is best. Uh, Thomas W. from Washington, D.C., Hello, Thomas, neighbor. Um, Robert B. from Williamsville, New York. Joseph S. from Nottingham, UK. Joseph, that goes for you too. Buy me a pint. Uh, put me up on a castle. Um, Harrison W. I'm sorry, Harrison. I'm not sure where you're from. Henrik S. from Oslo, Norway. Clinton R. from Rockville, Queensland, Australia. Philip N. from San Jose, California. And Stephen P. from... I'm sure I'm saying this wrong. Meth, Ireland. I'm not sure. Sorry about that, Stephen, Stefan. Um, as far as those who have made donations, Brad W., thank you very much, Brad. And those who have bought Churchill mugs, uh, Bill M. from Gillette, Wyoming, and Sean E. Um, so those are the people that um, who are helping out the show. You've probably noticed uh, probably in the last seven months, there's a slightly different format, ads and stuff like that, um, that... I'm not crazy about, but I'm trying to actually do this for a living now. For the last uh, eight or nine months, it hasn't really been working out with the particular company that I'm using, so I'm probably going to make some changes. Having said that, basically my plans for making money from this is, has not gone very well. So this is me asking you, I'll make it short and quick, if you ever thought about supporting the show, if you ever thought about donating to the show, if you ever thought about signing up for membership, um, to support the show, that would be great. The way membership works is you uh, can either pay an annual fee or pay a monthly fee of $5, and you get two extra episodes a month. Um, you can go to worldwar2podcast.net to sign up for membership. If you wanted to help support the show directly, you can go to PayPal, wwiipodcast at gmail.com. So, um, uh, I would appreciate anything that you could do for me uh, until I can figure out a better system for this, um, a better hosting service, just to make just to get things working again. So, um, all the what is that? The best laid plans of mice and men. Anyway, so I'm doing the best I can. I'm I'm trying not to to give this up, but so yeah, I'm finished talking about that now. So anyway, I will get on to the next episode as fast as I possibly can. I And it will be in the next week, week and a half, because I'm going to the podcast conference in Harvard the first couple of days of November. So I'll get it out before I go then, and we can actually get into um, what's going on in Battleship Row, which is quite amazing. Uh, despite the confusion, um, the Japanese were able to pull off a, a tremendous success. So we'll get into the minute detail of that soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. And thank you for your patience in between the episodes. And I will be back as soon as I can. Take care, everyone.